0: I'm going to ask you to go to two places in your Bible. If you take your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2 and Philippians chapter 2. Luke 2 and Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start with the reading of the Word of God in Philippians chapter 2. So go ahead and locate both of those texts if you would. And then I'm going to ask you to do something we don't do all the time. I'm going to ask you to stand. If you're physically able to stand, please do for the reading of Philippians 2. Philippians 2. So please stand if you can. Philippians 2, verse 1. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, Philippians 2, 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Can we all say it together? To the glory of God the Father. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. May he write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask you to hold your place in Philippians 2. And also get ready to just take a few verses. Take a look at a few verses in Luke 2. Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for the baptisms that happened And thank you for the precious children that have come to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is uh, good news of great joy, (laughs) which is for all the people, young, old, and in between. Thank you, Lord, that even angels long to look into these things. And this time of year is very sacred for all of us, Lord, I think as we reflect on the majesty of what Christmas actually means, it's really almost beyond words. But we do have words that have been breathed out by God, captured in the Holy Scriptures, that do give us a glimpse of exactly what you want us to see and hear and respond to. And so, Lord, as we have come to this place on this Sunday morning, on this Lord's Day, We just want to set aside everything, every weight, every concern, every distraction, everything that may steal our joy and challenge our peace. And we look to a night when a child was born, a son was given. And we look to a hope that is the anchor of our souls. So may you minister, Lord, as only you can as we get into your word and as I already mentioned, may your word go deep into us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to look at Philippians and take a break from the book of Mark. And our typical uh, mode of teaching is verse by verse through books of the Bible. But we'll take a little break here at Christmas time, and we'll look at a few Christmas messages together. I'd like to just share a few verses that I think we all know, and it's become really the fabric of our hearts. Luke 2 verse 10 says the angel said to them do not be afraid for behold I bring you good news of a great joy which shall be for all the people Luke 2 11. for today in the city of David there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord now when we're together next Saturday night and Sunday we'll get into the Luke 2 text but I wanted to set that up by going to Philippians now. And we're going to look at a Christmas text in one of the epistles. When you hear the word epistle, that just simply means a letter. It's been pointed out by theologians that the Gospels tell the story of Jesus, but the epistles or the letters give the meaning of the story. It's not like the Gospels don't give us some meaning, but you get the depth of meaning by getting into the letters of the New Testament. Letters like 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, and so forth. Philippians is an uh, epistle of joy. If you ever read a commentary on Philippians or studied the book, and many of you have in, in various Bible studies, Philippians has been called the epistle of joy, the letter of joy. One of the remarkable things about that is that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter from prison, and yet he is encouraging Christians to have joy. He says uh, he even challenges them to be of the same mind, that is, not to be cookie cutter Christians, but to, to have the heart of Christ, to have the Holy Spirit driving their lives. And that verse 2, Philippians 2, would make his joy complete. It is possible to have joy even when your circumstances are not the best. I mean, after all, the Apostle Paul does write this from a prison experience where he's probably chained to a different Roman guard every four hours. It wasn't the best of circumstances, and, and prison experiences back in that day were not the best of circumstances at all. But Paul found joy in Jesus, and that's really what Christmas is all about. Now, what he's going to write in Philippians chapter 2, and we'll focus on verses 5 through 11, is an incredible section of Scripture. Uh, scholars have said that this particular section may have existed uh, before Paul wrote Philippians. So it may not be his uh, original, if you will. And some scholars have said that it's a fragment from an ancient hymn. And when you hear the word hymn, you may be thinking of like a, a hymn that we sing today. But a hymn is more like in the ancient world when it's attached to this kind of fragment that existed either by uh, spoken word or it was written down by Christians, it's more like a creed. and a creed technically means what we believe. So scholars say that this is one of many creeds that you'll see in the Bible that's put into a Bible text. it's definitely inspired by God. but what they say is that this was probably used at communion uh, for the early church and it was it was a uh, a remarkable section where they would just celebrate who Christ is. One scholar, uh, Marshall, says this hymn has three stages. It examines or lays out the pre-existence of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ. It introduces something quite unique in the New Testament where Typically what Paul does is he'll lay out doctrine like in the book of Ephesians. He'll tell you who you are in Christ and then what you should do in light of who you are. But in Philippians, it's actually the reverse. In Philippians, he'll start with duty and then move to doctrine. So what he does is tell you what you should do, how you should live, and then he'll tell you why you should do it. Because this is exactly what Jesus Christ did and we should do the same. You could call this particular section of Scripture uh, a Christmas attitude. What is the proper Christmas attitude? It's not to be slugging people or pushing around in the mall for the last toy, right? It's rather to have a heart of service and a heart of love. This is what scholars would call the highest Christology that we may see in the Bible When you see the name of Christ and ology put on the end of it, ology just means study of, so this is the highest stuff that we have about Jesus Christ and who he is. And who he actually is is really mind-blowing. He is God in human flesh. God came down. The title of our message is Heaven Came Down to Save Us. So this is not just about Christology or theology as much as Many of us enjoy the study of these things, but this text was given to us to transform our thinking. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we're to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our reasonable service in view of His great mercy. And we're not to be conformed to this world, but we're to be, what? Transformed by the renewing of our minds. One of the ways that your mind gets renewed, is by getting the truth into your mind. It has a way of transforming and challenging all of us. So this is a text. It starts off on how to love people, how to approach people with a, call it a Christmas attitude or a Christmas mindset. Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 3, do nothing. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing. You know, whenever you're reading a scripture, um, you might because we're all human and we all have our faults and we all know that selfishness is one of our challenges, right? So when you look at the Bible, sometimes you, you look at phrases and you're like, does nothing really mean nothing? Like, is that a sweeping statement? Is there any wiggle room? Any loopholes there? Uh, apparently not. Because it does say nothing and nothing means nothing. It says do nothing from selfishness. Boy, Christmas time is a time when selfishness can be quite a challenge, right? Because we all know that as sacred as Christmas is, it can turn into a time when we're just worried about what we're going to get and what kind of gifts we're going to get. We, uh, we had the privilege of being at another church a few weeks ago, which is pretty rare for me, but I got to hear another pastor. He's talking about Christmas and he said, you know, when we were growing up as kids, we couldn't wait for Christmas. Remember how we would just mark the days and time seemed to move so slow. And as adults, he said, we typically do just the opposite. It just comes too fast. Amen? And we're like, did you all realize it's a week until Christmas? I have people ask me all the time, are you ready for Christmas? I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm never ready. How many of you would like to admit you are a last-minute shopper? Just go ahead and confess it. It's good for the soul. All right, so I'll see you at Walmart on Christmas Eve. (laughs) With that desperate look on your face. What do I do now? It's hard. But we're to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, which has the idea of vain or empty glory, but with humility of mind, this is a, an approach to life. Humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as what? More important than himself. The NIV says, consider others better than yourselves. And the ESV says, count others more significant than yourself. Would Christmas change for you if that was your mindset? For some of you, it is your mindset. You, some of you are incredible you buy very early Uh, you have gifts for people in the spring for the coming Christmas I don't know how you do it I'm not that good of a planner (laughs) but you say oh that would be wonderful for so-and-so that would that would be a great gift for so-and-so and there are people who go to Christmas sales after Christmas to get stuff cheaper anybody out there All right, you guys are very strategic people. I can't do that. I I don't want to look at any Christmas sales after Christmas. But but we are to have a mindset, call it a Christmas mindset, but we're to have it all year long. And our mindset is that we are to consider others better, more significant, and more important than ourselves. This is the Christian ethic. This is Christian morality. This is why being a Christian can be so challenging. This is why we need the power of the Holy Spirit to truly live out what the Bible tells us to do. Because that's going to take our extra time, our extra prayers, our extra giving. But I have found something, I'm sure you have as well, that the Bible is right when Jesus said, and he's always right, it is more blessed to what? To give than to receive. And this is a very giving church. And you guys have, you may not know this, but you've already helped a lot of people. Just by your benevolence giving, we've helped uh, a myriad of families. We've been able to help people who could not provide Christmas this year. We put a, a, by your generosity, we were able to put out a little uh, push notification on our app, and uh, we let people know that we could help. And I will tell you this, If you need help this Christmas time, please come and see me after this service because we'd like to help you. That's why the church is here. We're not here to take, we're here to give. That's why Jesus came. He came to give to all of us. So the Bible says, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, verse four. The word lookout is a Greek word called skopio and it sounds like our English word scope and uh, I was looking at images this week and I, I didn't put it up on the screen, but the, the best image I can think of is that periscope that comes out of the water of a ship. And I asked my, my wife who does all the graphics in the church, I said, should I put a picture of that? She goes, no, just, and we were doing it at the same time. My back was turned to her and she was going, just do this. <laughs> and I was doing it at the same time. And that's what happens when you're married for a quarter of a century. We're like, no way! Yeah. You were doing it too, yeah. We're always to be on the lookout for how we can help someone else. And sometimes we're really good at doing that with people outside of our our immediate circle, right? We're always on the lookout on how we can bless somebody, hopefully. But sometimes we may miss it with what's right in front of us with our scope. You all with me? So the Bible challenges us to always be on the lookout as to how we can bless other people. This is the duty. It says, have this attitude. This word in Greek is have a mindset, be mentally disposed in this direction. The word in Greek means to think, judge, or set your mind on with the emphasis of adopt this attitude in yourselves, verse five, which was also in Christ Jesus. An attitude is something that you can adopt. It is something that you can make a decision that you are going to have a Christ-like attitude today. Some of you are overwhelmed by those prospects. But you don't have to worry about yesterday because you can't change yesterday. And you don't have to worry about tomorrow. Jesus says today has enough problems in itself, so don't worry about tomorrow. All you have to worry about is having a good mindset today. How's that? Just today. Because today is all you've been promised anyway. It's all you have. So how about for the next week, until you get to Christmas, let's all challenge each other. How about we have a mindset that was also in Christ Jesus? That we look to see how we can help other people. You might discover that you'll have the best Christmas of all if you adopt this mindset because you'll truly be a blessed person. It's a lifestyle. It's an attitude. It is something that you can choose to do with God's help. And this is something that the apostles were struggling with as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark. They continued to fight over which one of them was going to be the greatest. And uh, Jesus told them at one point in Mark 10, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be mocked, spit upon, crucified. I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And the apostles still were arguing about which one was going to be the greatest. And still, they were saying, we want the superior positions on your right hand and on your left. And Jesus said, no. That's not how it goes here, boys. When uh, theologians look at Philippians chapter 2, they say that the the greatest illustration of Jesus' condescension, his humiliation, being God and becoming man, is pictured in his washing of the disciples' feet. They had made Passover preparation, and Pastor Chris took us through that text in the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things that would happen in those days is everybody wore sandals, so you would pick up dust on your feet uh, with the, the dirt roads and so forth. And nobody thought at the Passover meal to wash the disciples' feet. So think about it. Here they are. There's 13 gentlemen in this room. They all have picked up dust on their feet. They're going to have a Passover meal and everybody's feet are dirty. And so you would would lay down and, and, and you would extend your feet behind you, but everybody had dirty feet. That's kind of a gross thing, isn't it? So Jesus did something remarkable since nobody else was willing to do it. And maybe a few people thought about it. A few people may have looked at everybody's feet and said, (laughs) But I'm not going to do it. How many of us have this phrase in our mind quite often? I'm not going to do it. I don't know who's going to do it. But I'm not going to do it. And we run into a myriad of situations in life where we think as Christians, someone else will take care of that. calls go for support for missionaries and uh, needs in churches. And we think somebody else has got that. Somebody else will take care of that. And Jesus said, no, I'll take care of it. And he took off his outer garments, poured water into a basin, and he began to wash their feet. And what's remarkable about what he did is it's a picture of his humiliation coming down as God from heaven to earth, but it's also something incredible about who he is because he showed his love, he showed his mindset of a servant. He deemed others more significant than himself and this is of course the the reason that he went to the cross is that he deemed you more important than his suffering and pain. He deemed you more important than a temporary setting aside of the full prerogatives of deity. He loved you so much that he gave himself. What he had to do was terrible. It was the most terrible way to die. He didn't just become a human. He became a human to die. In the most terrible way you could ever die. And he did it for love. And he did it for me. Peter, you know, when the Lord came to Peter, and what what is also something to consider is that he washed Judas's feet as well in that upper room. Would you have? If you knew what he was about to do to you, would you have washed his feet? You know, sometimes we pick and choose, right? Well, I'll do that for him, but not for him. I'll do that for her, but not for her. And Jesus washed Judas' feet as well. It's an it's incredible scene. See, this is the way he loves, and we're challenged to love the same way. If I were just to ask you to pause for a second and ask you a very personal question, how do you think you're doing in that area? How would you respond? Can you think of the last time that you loved in this way? That you looked to someone else as more significant than yourself? As we get into the Second part of the text, we've got the Christmas attitude. Now we're going to see how Jesus was, uh, who he, he actually is. Look at verse 6. It says, who although uh, existed in the form of God. If you have an NIV, it says being in very nature God. Now we're going to pause here for a second because it's easy to pass this by. But in verse 6, it says, although he existed in the If you're interested in Greek words here, the New Testament was originally written in Greek. It's morphe, M-O-R-P-H-E. He existed in the form of God is morphe. Jesus is God, but Jesus came down. And what Paul is saying is that he existed in the morphe of God. Here's the word. I'm going to give you some definitions because it's really important to understand this. Morphe is a word that refers to the essence, nature, or substance of of a thing that is seen. It is an external form of an internal nature or substance. Morphe is therefore properly the nature or essence, not in the abstract, but as actually subsisting in the individual, and retained as long as the individual itself exists. Thus, in this passage before us, Morphe, Theou, Is the divine nature actually inseparably subsisting in the person of Christ? For the interpretation of the form of God, it is sufficient to say that it includes the whole nature and essence of deity. A a good parallel verse is Colossians 2.9. It says, In him, Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The true meaning of morphe in the expression form of God is confirmed by its reoccurrence in the corresponding phrase, form of a servant. It is universally admitted, this is from Vine's Expository Dictionary, that the two phrases are directly, directly antithetical and that form must therefore have the same meaning or the same sense in both. John Calvin says, the form of God means here his majesty. For as man is known by the appearance of his form, So the majesty which shines forth in God is his figure. Credibly, we say of Jesus, he is light of light. We must note that form of God does not refer simply to his external appearance, but to his being. B.B. Warfield says, Paul does not simply say he was God. He says he was in the form of God, employing a turn of speech which throws emphasis upon our Lord's possession of the specific quality of God. Form is a term which expresses the sum of those characterizing characterizing qualities which make a thing, the precise thing that it is, inside and out. And I'm sorry for all the technical language, but this is really important. In fact, in the early centuries of the church, this was a, uh, uh, they wanted to be as specific as possible to make sure that everyone knew who Jesus was. So there were early church councils in Nicaea and so forth and they they debated this so that there would be precision as to Christ's person but you need to know that this teaching was around in the early church it was just clarifying the precise understanding of it so that everybody was clear on who Jesus actually is when our Lord is said to be in the form of God therefore he is declared in the most expressed manner possible to be all that God is to possess the whole fullness of attributes which make God, God. We do a program called the Bible Answer Show, and it's on at noon on KBRT. And we had a gentleman call in, he was very honest, and he said, Look, I have a different view than most Christians, because I believe that Jesus is a created being, and that he is lesser than God the Father or God Almighty. And we said, Well... With all due respect, sir, uh, that's not the case. And he said, well, prove me wrong. Uh, Show me the scriptures. And we went to John 1, 1, and we talked, I think, about Colossians 1. But in the end, what grabbed this man was Philippians 2, when it says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be, what? Grasp. You see, Jesus Christ is equal with God the Father. And the only way you can be equal with God the Father is to be... God. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. John 1.1 1, 1. and John 1.14 says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In John 1.1 1, 1, when it says in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God it goes on to say that this Word is the creator of everything. John 1.1 1, 1 is an allusion to Genesis 1.1 1, 1, where it says in the Beginning, what happened? God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. There are parallels. It's an allusion from John 1 to Genesis 1. What's the beginning? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, God did what? Created the heavens and the earth. Now, we believe that when He created the heavens and the earth, He created time. So, if Jesus is there in the beginning, Then we'd have to say he was there before the beginning began. And if you're there before the beginning began, then you must be the beginner. (laughs) Amen? And if you're the beginner, then you are God. You see, God says all over the Bible To whom will you compare me? To whom will you make my equal? Well, there's nobody who's equal to God unless they are God. Now, some of you say, but if God the Father is God, how can God the Son be God? How can the Holy Spirit be God? I don't know. <laughs> three and one, one and three. I know. It's hard to put it up on a chalkboard, but here's the thing. In Philippians 2, verse 6, it says, Although he existed in the morphe of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. See the word equality in Greek it's a word called isos. Isos. I-S-O-S. So I was thinking of an isosceles triangle. An isosceles triangle is a triangle that's what? What was that? That was a lot of muttering right there. Kids what's an isosceles triangle? Triangle that's equal on all sides. So sometimes what you see when someone's trying to depict the Trinity is a triangle. It says God in the middle, and then it has Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each are equal to each other, each one our God, but the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son. The Father sent the Son. The Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism, they are distinct and yet one. Here's a good way to think of it, and I'll give credit to Joe Kelly on a recent broadcast. God is one what and three who's. One God and three persons or personalities. This is the Trinity. People say, but that's difficult. It's hard to understand it. How can God be one and three and three and one? Again, I don't completely understand it. I can read the scriptures and apprehend it. I might not fully comprehend it, but that's what makes God God. How do you explain in the beginning God spoke the universe into existence? You can't. And yet he did it because his power is beyond our comprehension. His glory is higher than some of us can even imagine. And this God became a baby in Bethlehem. You see, when I begin to understand who he is, I'm in more awe of what he did. I'm in more awe that he was born in a cave or a stable. I'm in more awe that there was no room in the inn. I'm in more awe that he was born to a, a servant, or a, not a servant girl, but a a a girl that was pretty much unknown, probably 14 years of age. Her name was Mary in a nowhere town named Nazareth. This is the incredible nature of who God is. And God became one of us. When Jesus was praying in the high priestly prayer in John 17, he said he was going to return to the glory that he had with the the Father before the world was. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. The one who spoke the universe into existence is the one who died for you, my friend. I was on the golf course one time and I had uh, struck up a conversation with a, a gentleman and we had played several holes of golf together and I asked him if he uh, knew who God was or had a relationship with Jesus Christ and he goes, oh, I'm not sure about all that and I have my doubts. And I said, When you look around you, sir, and you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, this creation, some six million million forms of plants and animals, the diversity of life, the creative power of what you see out there, the balance that it takes, where do you think this all came from? And he goes, That's a good argument. And I just simply gave him the order, the argument from creation. We are in a building. A building means there was what? A builder. When you look at a painting and you're in awe, it means there was a painter. And When you have a creation, there, it means that there's a creator. You see, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen by what's been made. And he was, he was listening, and I said, you, did you know something? The Bible says the one who made all of this is the one that died for you. And I went, right from creation to the cross. And I think you can do that. I think you and I can make it very simple for people, and when we're, we run into agnostics and skeptics, just go from creation, because nobody can deny that creation cries out for a creator, and then go to the cross and say, do you know that this creator died for you on the cross? I mean, that's a quick one-two punch, isn't it? But it's filled with a lot of power, and it's the reality of what the Bible teaches The one who made us is the one who died for us. He stepped out of the glory of heaven. One writer says Jesus could surely have chosen to step back into the personal glory of heaven should he chose, but he didn't. He chose the cross for us. He chose to die that we might live. Verse 7 says he emptied himself. The ESV and NIV says he made himself nothing taking on the form, there's that word morphe again, of a bondservant, that's the word doulos, and a bondservant can be a voluntary slave, and he was made in the likeness of men. When you saw Jesus on the earth, to my knowledge, you saw him as a man, because that's exactly what he was. He was 100% man and 100% God. Jesus Christ did not subtract his deity. God cannot stop being God. He took on the additional nature of humanity. Very important distinction. God did not stop being God. He just clothed himself in humanity. And this is part of the mystery of what we call the incarnation, which simply means he became flesh. See the word emptied there? It's kanao in Greek, and it... It has the idea of to make empty, to lay aside. Um, Jesus never stopped being God, but what he did was veil his glory in humanity. He veiled his glory in humanity. And a good way to, to see a picture of when he showed a little bit of the glory was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, he takes Peter, James, and John up to a high mountain, and he was transfigured, and His face shone like the sun and they were blown away. And Moses and Elijah show up and they end up fading into the background. And the only one that's standing there is Jesus. He gave them a little taste of who he actually is. And I don't know if this is uh, the best way to put it, but he kind of just went, just let them get a little glimpse, right, of who he is. He showed his glory up on the mountain. He showed who he truly is. And he said, I want these who have followed me, Father, to share in that glory. Jesus Christ became like us that we might become like him. Jesus Christ became like us that we might become like him. Now, don't get this wrong. We are never going to be God, but we are to be like Christ. He became a man that we might become more like him. He is the start of a new humanity. The Bible calls him the last Adam. The first Adam messed it up, right? Adam and Eve. We don't want to leave her out, right? She was hanging out by the tree, listening to the serpent. Adam was there. Genesis 3 6 says that Adam was with her by the tree. What was he doing? Why did he not stand between his wife and the serpent? I don't know. All kinds of conjecture. Some people think he was watching football. (laughs) And the human race was plunged into sin and death. Why do we die? Because we have all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus Christ is the last Adam, he's the start of a new humanity. He's a life-giving spirit. The first Adam brought sin and death. The last Adam has brought life. And you are either in him or you're not. If you have the son, you have the life. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have this life. That's what the Bible teaches. But when you really see who he is, it's hard to imagine that we would resist coming to him. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. I wrote in my notes, if you could imagine the descent from the highest mountain peak to the lowest depth of the sea, a traveling from the farthest spot in the universe away from the earth to the earth, your imagination has not begun to scratch the surface of the sacrifice that Jesus made by condescending to become a man to save your soul it was love that drove him but i don't think that we can even truly imagine what a step down it was for him what he knew he was going to face and yet he became a bond servant a bond servant is one who serves others sacrifices his rights for the sake of others and being found in appearance verse 8 as a man He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Historians say that the Romans didn't even want to speak of the cross. They didn't like talking about it because it was the death instrument of the first century. It was the first century electric chair. Nobody wanted to talk about the cross. The symbol of the cross seems to have taken a a few centuries to really take hold even in the Christian church. As a symbol because it was something that was anathema to the minds of so many. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. They could not kill you on a cross as a Roman citizen. And yet God Almighty died the death of the cross. And he despised its shame. You know, when you think about the cross, there's evidence that the cross actually was Uh, at the height of the road where people passing by, going to the marketplace, would walk by crucifixion victims that would be about this high off the ground as this platform is. And you might be walking to do some shopping and walk right by a crucifixion victim. And they say that those victims often were on crosses without any clothes on, naked, dying in front of the masses. And some of them stayed on crosses for days. We've all seen the scenes, right? And sometimes it it makes me tremble. We say, why? Why why did he have to die? Well, he died the death that I deserved. He humbled himself and became obedient to the death, even death on a cross. He despised the shame. He recoiled from it in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Father, if there's another way, let this cup, Pass from me. He didn't want to drink it, folks. You wouldn't want to. None of us would. If you knew what was coming and you knew not only the physical torture he would go through, but he would bear the sin of the world and there's some mystery here, but the Bible says he who knew no sin became sin for us. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross. Well, this is how God does things. This is who Jesus is, and we end with these verses that are powerful. It says, therefore, verse 9, therefore is always a connecting word in light of what you just read. Also, God highly exalted him. The Father highly exalted Jesus in light of his humility. And Jesus says, if you will humble yourself, you will be what? Exalted. But if you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. You know, our world has it backwards. It is those who humble themselves that will end up being exalted before God. Not to the place that Jesus has, but to a place of honor nonetheless. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above how many? Every name. The Lord says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, 1 Peter 5, 6. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven, includes angels and believers there, on earth, that would speak of humans on earth, and under the earth would speak of the dead, and perhaps demonic spirits as well. The bending of the knee is universal in scope. It says every knee is going to bow, Those who thought they had authority over him or could shame him are going to bow. Pilate's going to bow. Herod, the high priest, Hitler, Lucifer, kings, presidents, archangels, prophets, wise men, you name it, they're going to bow. Every knee. In heaven, Michael, the archangel, is bowing. Lucifer's going to bow. All the devils and the demons and the the terrible men and those who were the most exalted, Nebuchadnezzar, Egyptian pharaohs, you name it, they're all bowing before one. Why would they bow before this one named Jesus? Because he is God. And he has a name which is above every single name. Everyone will bow. There's an old commercial I think it had to do with the auto repair place and the line was something like this. You can pay me now or you can pay me later. And the idea was if you do some preventative maintenance on your vehicle, then you'll be better off. And let me just say this to you. This is going to be preventative maintenance for your soul. You can pay now or you will pay later. You see every knee is going to bow. And some people are going to bow and say, fall on your knees, hear the angels' voices, O night divine. And they will bow in worship. They will bow like the wise men bowed. Wise men and women still bow down. And there will be other people who will bow, but it's not going to be because they really wanted to. It's going to be because they had to. And they're going to say, oh, yes, he is Lord. But for some people, sadly, it will be too late. You see, every knee will bow in heaven, earth, under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If uh, the worship team can hear my voice, you guys would come back out. Um. See verse 11. Just write this down for your notes. This is a quotation from Isaiah 45. Here's what it says. This is a great deity passage and it confirms that the God of the Bible is the true God. It says these words, Isaiah 45, 21 says, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together who has announced this from old. Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, The Lord. And there is no other god besides me a righteous god and a savior there is none except me Isaiah 45:22 says turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other I have sworn by myself Isaiah 45:23 the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance Philippians 2.11 is a quotation from Isaiah 45.23, a declaration from the God of the Old Testament, and there's no distinction between the two Testaments, because the God of the Old Testament is Jesus, and the God of the New Testament is Jesus. It's the same God. He knew we were in trouble, and that's why he came. And he says, Yahweh says, Yahweh in fact makes an oath here. He says, I promise you, you can take this one to the bank. Every knee is going to bow. You know, one of the greatest things that I've discovered in my life, being a Christian since the late 80s, is by bowing the knee to him, I have found life. By bowing my knee to him, I've been raised up, seated with him in heavenly places, and that in the ages to come, he's going to show me the surpassing greatness of his glory. And this is where it starts, brothers and sisters. And for those of you who may not know Jesus today, but you'd like to know him, when you come to know Jesus, you come to know your creator. Doesn't it make sense that if God made you, the only way that you would find completeness is to come to know him? If you live a life detached from your creator, then it only makes sense that you're going to live a life that ultimately is empty, vain. No matter what you get, what accolades, what your bank account says, what rewards you get, you're always going to have a huge missing piece in your life because you'll be detached from the God who made you. But once you know him, everything else will fall into place. And your life will have new meaning. You'll have a new start, a new heart. And this could be the merriest Christmas of them all. If you want that new beginning, you have to decide to bow now so it's something like this would you all bow your hearts with me father God for those who may want to open their hearts for the first time or those who may want to rededicate and for a lot of Christians in this room right now for those who just wanna just say thank you and just bow a little bit further a little bit deeper in their walk may you bless each heart only you know the hearts of people Lord But my prayer is that anybody who doesn't know you or needs to come to know you, maybe in a new and fresh way, maybe those who have been running or have walked away, but they're here today for a reason, may you speak to them about their need for you, your love for them, your grace, how you humbled yourself for them. It's something like this. If it's you, pray it. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Pray it out loud if it's you. I'm a sinner, and I'm sorry. I've fallen short in many ways in my life. But thank you that you died on the cross for me. Thank you that you rose from the dead to defeat my mortal enemy, Death. I bow my knee, I bow my heart to you. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Please change me from the inside out. Give me a new beginning. Forgive my sin, Lord. Thank you that you took it at the cross. Took my punishment. Lord, as we look to you now, we know you're at that exalted position with the name above all names. The right hand of the Father. We know that you're going to sum up the times and we look forward to that day, but until that day comes, may we be people who are doing Philippians 2 deeming others more significant than ourselves, loving others as you love. May you do that through us, and may it be for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.